why certain traditions exist. According to uh, an article on the website, How Stuff Works, I want to share with you three traditions, how they came into existence. But I want to do it in such a way that I want you to vote on which one you think is correct. I'm going to give you two options. One that is correct from the website article, and the other that has been created, and see if you can figure out, we're going to go by votes. So you got to listen in carefully to vote on what you think is the origin of these three traditions. The first tradition is the tradition of pinky swear, pinky swear, because who hasn't at some point or another made a pinky swear with a best friend or a child? The, the pinky swear is the highest of all promises. It is an unbreakable yoke. But where did this tradition come from? Well, here's the first of two possibilities. Though the pinky finger is the smallest finger, the tendon structure of the hand allots the greatest strength to the pinky. Knowing this, John R. Smith, founder and CEO of Smith Industries in the late 1950s, sought to move from the handshake as the way that deals are done to pinky swear as the form. After all, who says strength is found in small things? Now, it didn't really catch on with CEOs, but with children, it caught on. Option one. Option two. What you're saying with a pinky swear is that if you break it, the wronged party may cut off your finger. The gist of the whole custom, if not the bloody follow-through, is a recent immigrant to the United States having originated from the Japanese mafia. The Japanese roots of the pinky swear are evident in the fact that if you watch Japanese anime films, they show up regularly. So, option one, CEO John R. Smith. How many? A few. Option two, Japanese mafia. The majority has it. It is, in fact, the Japanese mafia was the originator of that. All right, tradition number two, the best man in a wedding. Commonly, the groom's brother or best friend, the best man stands beaming next to the husband-to-be. Sometimes, he even cries. But here are your two options, where this tradition came from. Yesteryear, in time past, the best man would have held a sword. You know why he stands so close to the groom? It's so that he can intercede with his blade if needed. And so where does the whole idea of best come from? Literally, he was the groom's best swordsman. The Tradition hails all the way back to the days when a wedding was a financial transaction. And as we all know, sometimes financial transactions don't always go well. Should the bride's father have second thoughts or a lovelorn rival spring from the rafters, it was the best man's job to ensure that the deal went down as planned. Option one. Option two comes 
from 17th century France out of a culture of competition. Friends and family of the groom would compete in a series of contests, archery, horse riding, physical one-on-one sparring. But then there was a less physical side where they would compete in writing poems and reading them for judges, as well as preparing that French dish, ratatouille, and being able to be judged on which one was the best. After all of these competitions were done, the best man would rise to the top. And if competition wasn't enough, there was extra motivation because it was believed that the person who would win to be the best man would be the next person to get married. Kind of like the bow or the bouquet being thrown for uh, see who is going to be married next. So, which of the two is it? Is it the swordsman? How many say the swordsman? How many say it is the French competition to see who earns the best man? All right. Still, the majority has it. Option number one, it is the swordsman. Lastly, Election Tuesday. Why do we have elections on Tuesday? Well, Benjamin Franklin was an avid inventor, you know. And he came up with what was called the glass harmonica. You know how if you pour water into cups or glasses and then kind of get your wet finger around it, it will make a sound and you can have different levels and it will cause different amounts of sound and different notes. Well, he developed this thing called the glass harmonica that had glasses together with a rod between it held together by cork and it was filled with different levels of water and it had, he had an apparatus on the bottom where he would move it with his foot and it would come around and he'd have, and he was able to create this amazing sound using this musical instrument, the glass harmonica that he developed. Franklin said, that of all of his inventions, and you know he did things like the Franklin stove and the bifocals and the lightning rod, of all of his inventions, Ben Franklin said that this invention gave him the greatest satisfaction. And you know when he finished it? The first Tuesday of November. And as a founding father of the United States, in this prize invention, they honored him by making the first Tuesday of November Election day. Option one. Option two. You can blame it on the fact that we have an agrarian past or a farming past. In November, most of the crops have been harvested, yet the dirt roads remain dry enough to have a horse and buggy travel a road. And in times when things were being decided, polling stations, you couldn't just go across the street to the Indiana Township building to be able to vote. You had to vote, go to your county seat, which for a lot of people was a long way away, and it would have to travel. And so Sundays were not days that you could travel. So Mondays were out because it was a long travel. You had to stay overnight. And so you would, couldn't travel on Sunday, so Monday was out. But you could make a quick travel on Monday Stay overnight on Tuesday, vote early in the morning, and be back in time to sell your crops for the weekend. And so, because of that, the first Tuesday in November was established as Election Day. So which one? Do you think 
It was because in honor of Ben Franklin and his greatest invention. How many say that one? How many say option two? Option two are, is the winner. Now, question is, how many of you knew before I said any of those what those options were? Anyone have, have known the reasons of any of those? All right, we got some. So overall, it brings us to this reality of why do we do the things we do? Sometimes we just have these traditions, and the question is, if we stop long enough to ask the question, why do we do that? I spend all that time because in the same way, have you ever wondered why communion or the Lord's Supper and baptism exist? Here at Dorseyville Alliance Church, we call these traditions ordinances. And we get that. Our Alliance Statement of Faith says this. In section 1.9 of the Alliance Statement of Faith says, The church consists of all those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, are redeemed through his blood, and are born again of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the head of the body of the church, which has been commissioned by him to go into all the world, a witness, preaching the gospel to all nations. We, we said a lot of those things in our declaration of this I believe. We see the, many of those things showing up. It goes on to say this. The local church is a body of believers in Christ who are joined together for the worship of God, for edification or encouragement through the word of God, for prayer, fellowship, the proclamation of the gospel, and the observance of, here's this word, ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So what are ordinances? Ordinances are God-ordained ceremonies or practices that he commanded to be, form, to, to be performed. Ordinances have three categories or criteria. They have to be started by Jesus, they have to be taught by the apostles, and they have to be practiced by the early church. This morning, we're going to look at these two, but more than just look at them, we want to celebrate them together. And I want you to be listening for those three criteria, started by Jesus, taught by the apostles, and practiced by the early church to see if, in fact, these two the Lord's Supper and baptism are ordinances of the church. Sermon notes are in your bulletin if you want to write a few notes down, but let's look at it together. The first, look at the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. The ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Where does it come from? What is the origin of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper? Luke chapter 22, where I asked you to open to, verses 14 through 20, says this. When the hour came, this is Jesus on the, the pas, the, on the Passover, preparing to eat the Passover supper. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. We'll stop right there for a moment and just make comment that the setting of all of this is the Passover. The Passover was an ordinance of sort. It was a God-instituted, God-established ceremony or practice every year that the Israelites would gather together in their families to be able to remember something. They would remember how God had delivered them out of slavery 
in Egypt. How he had brought them out of the power and under the the slavery and the control of Pharaoh. How God had delivered them through ten plagues. How he brought them out into the desert to where he would have to go through the Red Sea. And when it looked like all hope was gone as the Egyptian army was at their back and Literally, probably two million Israelites were standing between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. God caused them to be held back and separated the waters of the Red Sea so they would be able to cross over on dry ground. And as the Egyptian army was then following them after they had crossed over, the Lord allowed the waters to come back, drowning the entire Egyptian army in pursuit of them. Deliverance of God. And every year they would come together to celebrate the Passover. Before they left Egypt, the last of the 10 plagues was the angel of death that came to kill the firstborn of, uh, firstborn and the firstborn animal. And God said, in order to pass over put the blood of an animal over the door frames and that would be how the angel of death would know to pass over that house. And so every year, the people of God, Israel, would come together to remember this in the Passover meal, to remember how God had delivered them. And so Jesus is in this context. He's spending time with his disciples remembering this yet again. And as he does this, he begins to change the meaning. In verse 17, after taking the cup, he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As they are doing this, Jesus gives a new meaning to it. The bread representing his body that would be given for them on the cross. And the cup would represent the new covenant in his blood that would be given for them for the forgiveness of their sins. Both the Passover and the Lord's Supper were done in remembrance. So we see the Lord's Supper checks this first box as an ordinance as Jesus started it. If you would turn, if you are in Luke, back a few books to the book of 1 Corinthians, to 1 Corinthians 11. We see it commanded. Jesus commands it, but Paul also commands it. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about their practice of the Lord's Supper. So this checks the box of the apostles teaching it. Paul taught it. It also checks the box of the early church practicing it. So we see these three. Jesus initiated it, started it. The Apostle Paul taught it, and it was practiced by the early church. In verses 23 to 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord, from Jesus, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. 
he tells, Paul tells them what was passed on to him by Jesus, reaffirming those words from Luke. Luke says it once and Paul says it twice. Do this in remembrance of me. The wording in the original language, if you're a, a language geek in any way, the tense of it is in the present imperative in the Greek language in which this was written. And for many of you, that may be like, who cares? I don't care about English present imperative. Why do I care about Greek present imperative? The reason that you should care, at least in this moment, is because the present imperative tense in Greek is a command, do this. It is a command tense, but it is not a one-time command tense. It is an ongoing, continue to do this tense. And so as Jesus was saying this, do this in remembrance of me. As Paul said it twice, do this in remembrance of me. It is a command, do this ongoing, keep on doing it. The early church, it looks like every time they gathered together, as they ate meals together, they would remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus on the cross. His body and the blood. His body with the bread, his cup with the wine. Do this in remembrance of me. The significance of it is there in verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, proclaim, let everyone know the Lord's death until he comes again. You see, when we do this, and in a moment we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in obedience to this command, we proclaim Jesus died. And as he died, the sins of the world, mine and yours, our guilt and our shame, our sicknesses and our diseases were placed on him on the cross. And by his shed blood, payment, payment has been made for our sin debt. The wages of sin are death, but the gift of God through Jesus is eternal life. That all those who confess Jesus is Lord, who believe in their hearts that he died and was raised back to life, will be saved, the scriptures say. And so we look back and we remember and we declare, Jesus died his body given for us, his blood shed for us until the day, as Jesus said in Luke, 11, or Luke chapter 22, until the day of the fulfillment in the kingdom. There's a day when Jesus will come back. He will come back in power and in victory. And when he comes back, he will come back for his people. And there will be a glorious celebration when we will eat with him this meal again. And we will celebrate that the one who suffered and died, who was raised victorious over sin and death, will come back to make all things right. That he is the victorious king. One day, in the fulfillment of his kingdom, in the fulfillment of his kingdom, we will eat this together. But until he comes back, we look back and remember his death. As we look forward, he's coming again. It's a way to keep us watching and waiting and ready as we proclaim 
in remembrance of him, his death and his resurrection. So we're going to do that together. We're going to celebrate this ordinance, this command that Jesus initiated, the apostles taught, the early church practiced. We are going to celebrate it together. So friends, you don't have to be a member of this church. I know that there's a number that are here to bear witness and to celebrate with those who are going to be baptized. So this does not have to be your church home to be able to come and to celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper with you, with us together. If you have received Jesus as your Savior, if you believe those things that we sang, I believe in God the Father. I believe in the death of Jesus. I believe he is my Savior. I've received him as my Savior. This table is for you. If those who are going to serve would come, and invite them to come at this time. We will one by one, or element by element, bread first, then juice, take this together. And so as you are served, use it as a moment or two just to be able to give thanks to the Lord, to affirm to him your belief that, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Christ the Son. Once everyone has been served, I'll lead us in a time where we eat together the bread first, then the cup. As was read on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you.
scriptures tell us that Jesus became like us. Though fully God, he humbled himself and took on flesh, human flesh, experiencing all that we experience in this life. And upon that flesh, fully human yet fully God, that flesh was nailed to a cross. And the sins of the world and the shame and the sickness and the disease and all that is broken were laid upon him there. Jesus said, as often as we eat this bread, we remember the body of Christ given for us. In remembrance of him, let us eat together. And after supper, Jesus, as we read, took the cup and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this presents my blood, the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you.
just like on that Passover night in Egypt, with the blood applied to the door frame of the house, the blood of Jesus was shed on the cross for the washing away, for the forgiveness of sin. We may think, boy, that sounds pretty barbaric, blood being shed. Every time forgiveness of sin before Jesus was atoned for, blood was shed. It seems intense, but yet it is intense. The wages of our sin is death. Blood shed to cover offense to a holy God. But God in his great love for us sent Jesus that we would not have to pay that death price. Jesus on the cross paid it for us so that all who would believe that, all those who would confess that with their mouths and that he is Lord would receive the washing that comes from the blood of Christ. The price was high, the body and the blood of Jesus. But the result was greater than we can ever begin to imagine. And for all of eternity, we will revel in what Jesus has done, his body and his blood. We do it together and we drink together in remembrance of him. Let us drink together. Yes, Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for your body given and your blood shed for us, for the forgiveness of our sin. And we declare, until you come again, your death, through this practice, through our obedience to your command to do this in remembrance of you. We worship you, we love you, and we thank you. We thank you for the blood that you've applied to us. Thank you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.
Yes, glory to his name. You may be seated. There's one more ordinance that we want to look at. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. And that is the one that we will celebrate in a moment. As we celebrate in communion, we celebrate this ordinance of baptism. The origin of baptism is found looking at Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14, which says this. This is God speaking to Abraham, setting up a covenant, a covenant of circumcision. And it says this, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, which is a promise that is that if broken, you can get out of. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This covenant relationship that God made with Abraham. I will bless you. I will be your God. You will be my people. Many descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky, sand on the seashore, will be yours, and all nations will be blessed through you. This promise, this relational covenant that God made with Abraham had an outward sign, a way to let others know these are the people of God. A physical sign. That were part of God's, that they were part of God's people, his promises. An outward sign for males. Come to the New Testament, the new covenant where Jesus said, the new covenant in my blood. There's a new way. There's a new outward sign. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29 says, You are all sons of God through faith, sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. Whereas it was only males who bore this sign. And whereas it was only Jews or those who were brought into this Jewish covenant, now all of those dividing things, male, female, Greek, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, all of those are eliminated. There is now room for everyone to come into this relationship And if you have received Jesus through faith in Jesus and then come and be baptized, you outwardly are showing a new sign that you are part of Abraham's promise. You are part of his family. Baptism, we can say, is the new circumcision for all to experience and participate in. We see it commanded by Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. So it checks the box of, 
Is it an ordinance and Jesus starting it? The last words that he gave them as he prepared to ascend into heaven after being resurrected, then Jesus came to them and said, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, followers of me. And as you do that, baptize them into the Trinity, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything. Part of this commandment is obedience to it. Teach them to obey everything. Part of it is be baptized. I have commanded everything I've commanded you, and surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. We see Jesus command all to be baptized. On Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out, and we sang about the church coming and being uh, beginning. The Spirit of God is poured out, and the Apostle Peter preaches a sermon. And after hearing the sermon, the people that were there ask, what must we do to be saved? How do we respond to this message about Jesus? And Peter replied, repent, turn from your sin, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter, an apostle, teaches this. Baptism. Jesus commanded it. Peter taught it as an outward way of declaring what was internal, that they have repented of their sin, inward faith, and now be baptized outwardly to let everyone know of what God has done inwardly and that they have decided to follow Jesus. Peter taught it, and the early church practiced it. There were 3,000 there on that day who repented and were baptized. We're going to have six that are going to be baptized today. Can you imagine 3,000? Get lunch, dinner, uh, breakfast tomorrow, we'll still be at it. It'd be great, huh? But six today who are going to follow this. As you read through the book of Acts, you have the Ethiopian eunuch who is baptized. You have Cornelius, the first Gentile believer, and his whole household, they're baptized. You have Lydia and her whole household, they're baptized. You have disciples in Ephesus who were believing already but didn't understand everything. When they found out about being baptized into the name of Jesus, they were baptized. There is this practice of the early church over and over and over of water baptism. And the significance of it is this. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to four. Paul says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The significance of baptism is this, that when a person comes to faith in Christ, they were united with him. That In a sense, outside of space and time, as Jesus hung on the cross, you were united with Christ as he died. And as he was taken off that cross and buried for those three days, you were buried spiritually with him. You were included with Christ and you were buried with Christ. But it doesn't end there, does it? Three days later, he was brought back to life and so you were raised to new life. 
And so this time of baptism that we will celebrate, there will be those who will go into the water. And as they go into the water outwardly, they are saying, this is what my life was like before Jesus. But as they give testimony and they declare publicly that they have decided to follow Jesus, that there's already been this inward change, that the blood of Christ has already washed them. This doesn't wash the sins off. This is the outward example of what has already happened inwardly. And as they go under the water, it is that visual sign that they have died with Christ, but coming back up, raised to new life in Jesus. And we will testify together through that act and through their words that they are followers of Jesus. That they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and they have decided, I will follow him. That is the significance of what we are about to do, of this ordinance that Jesus initiated, the apostles taught, and the early church practiced as we gather for this.